All right, and now we get to the main event of the evening in the UFC's bantamweight division. You have the number two ranked former interim and undisputed UFC bantamweight champion in the 16-4 and Pelter No Mercy Jan going up against the number three ranked training partner of the current UFC bantamweight champion in Aljamain Sterling, the grappling heavy forward pressure cardio machine with all puns intended in the Georgian Marab, the machine, Volishvili. So we have Peter Jan versus the Volishvili for the UFC bantamweight division in a five-round main event. This is a fantastic fight, man. This is a very interesting matchup, and this is a hard fight for Peter Jan. I know you guys are going to think that because I'm a huge Peter Jan fan, because I've always been a fan of Peter Jan, because I've always sang his praises, because I've never picked against him yet, that Peter Jan is 100% going to dominate Marab. He's going to put him away. He's going to finish him. Marab has no shot. Nah, man, I'm here to break down these fights without being, without, with, you know, being as impartial as I can, even though I do have my favorites. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. Breaking down the fight from a technical standpoint, Marab definitely has a shot. Marab definitely has a shot. Um, we'll look at the stats real quick before I break down the technical side of the fight. 5'7 uh, is the height for Peter Jan, 5'6 for Marab Devalishvili. So one-inch height advantage, and it's going to be a one-inch reach advantage for Marab Devalishvili, but Peter Jan will be able to use his reach better than Marab in this fight, having a 67-inch reach. So the reach advantage, even though it's on the side of Marab, I feel like it's more going to be um, a reach advantage for the former champion in Pelter Jan or Peter Jan, however you want to say it. Um, Leg reach is identical at 38 inches. You look at the win percentages, it's 44% of the wins come by way of KO, TKO, uh, 6% of the wins by way of submission, and 50% of the wins come by way of decision for Peter Jan. So 50-50 with decisions and finishes. And then on the side of Marab Devalishvili, 71% of his wins come by way of decision to a 29% finish rate. So average fight time for both men. Peter Jan has the more experience in the cage, but it's not by that much. 16 minutes and 6 seconds average fight time for the former champion in Jan to 14 minutes and 27 seconds for Marab the Machine Devalishvili. Um, I think the biggest difference you're going to see here is in the grappling aspect of the fight. Uh, Peter Jan lands about 1.86 takedowns per 15-minute fight. And, you know, Marab is like triple that. He lands 6.54 takedowns per 15-minute fight. So you're having about two takedowns compared to seven. So five more takedowns landed per a 15-minute fight for the machine. I mean, they call him the machine for a reason. It's forward pressure. It's good right hands, good one-twos. He has a really solid right hand, and I think it's a lot better than people expect. It's straight. It's clean. He gets off on the angle. The one-two is very solid for Marab. When it comes to his best shots on the feet, the right hand is the best strike that he throws, and he uses it to set up the entries to land those takedowns, get his head on the inside, get to the double leg, you know, work the single leg takedowns, work up to the body lock, push you up against the cage with the head on the inside single. He's very good at using the right hand to close the distance and set up his takedown entries. Out of those 6.54 takedown averages, he has about a 40% takedown accuracy rate. Jan is actually more effective with the takedowns that he gets, but he's more of a um, stepping from orthodox to southpaw, stepping around the lead leg of the orthodox fighter and landing the outside trip takedowns, kind of like what uh, Rose Namajunas did to secure her title victory against Zhang Weili and Joanna Janjacek in both of those rematches. Um, the stepping around the outside 
of the lead left leg of the orthodox fighter with that stance switch to southpaw. Jan's very good at landing those takedowns. He landed them a lot, I believe, against Douglas Silva de Andrade and a few of his other fights, but he's also good at catching the kicks and dumping you, working from the body lock and getting trips like we saw in the first fight against Eljamain Sterling. He was able to take Eljamain down a lot, and Jan has really solid takedown defense. I know he got taken down by Eljamain in the rematch early. He got taken down, got his back taken, you know, slipped up, gave up his back, and was able to have, you know, the human backpack backpack him for, you know, the remainder of the second and the third round. So 90% takedown defense rate for Peter Jan to a 78% takedown defense rate on the side of Marab Devalishvili. I don't necessarily think we'll see Peter Jan instill any takedowns of his own unless he's really able to tire out Marab in the championship rounds, in the fourth and the fifth round, which the fourth and the fifth round are going to heavily favor Peter Jan in this fight. But with the cardio forward pressure and wrestling ability of Marab, you know, he might be able to tire Jan out more than any fighter has in the fights that Jan has competed in inside the UFC. Submission average, pretty close, 0.17 for Peter Jan to 0.31 for Marab. Marab is more of a pressure, forward pressure, get in your face, take you down, and break you. Peter Jan gets in your face as well, but he's more of a counter-pressure fighter. Like, he'll forward pressure you to get you to do the things that you don't want to do and leave yourself open and, and, you know, highlight the defensive inconsistencies that you have in the striking on the feet, make you panic wrestle, make you panic shoot, and then he'll open up with his striking game. The right hook from southpaw into the right body kick, the one two, the uppercut up the middle. He's very good left hook, right uppercut, um, you know, slip uppercuts up the middle, getting in the clinch, landing the uppercuts, landing the elbows off the break in the clinches like we've seen against Uriah Faber. Landing the the kicks to the body are very good. The high kicks, the low kicks, the one-two switch southpaw to land the straight left hand. He has one of the best stance switch combinations that I've ever seen in mixed martial arts. The one-two and orthodox stepping into southpaw to get that outside foot on the orthodox fighter to land that straight left hand down the middle. He landed it a lot against Uriah Faber. He landed it against Corey Sandhagen. He landed it against Eljamain Sterling. He's very good at using the long guard. He uses that lead hand to kind of measure the distance and be able to find his way into range with his striking game. He wants to keep you at that distance, measure you with the lead hand, and then open you up for counters. He'll measure you, you step in, boom, right uppercut up the middle. He'll measure you, right hand, left hook, double jab, right hand. He'll measure you, right hand, left hook to the body, left hook up top. He's very good at cover counters as well. That's a big area of Peter Jan's game that I think people overlook because of how sharp he is with his boxing and his kicking ability on the feet. Jan is one of the sharpest strikers in the UFC. I also believe he's the best bantamweight in the world. Even though he has a lot of losses recently, a lot of them were questionable. I thought he won two rounds out of three against Sean O'Malley and won that should have won that decision, especially with his wrestling, with his takedowns, you know, with his top control. Um, and not getting knocked down in that fight, even though I believe they might have credited uh, Sean O'Malley with one knockdown. Like, the fight was close when I went back and watched it on a rewatch, but I believe he won that fight against Sean O'Malley, even though it was close and O'Malley showed up and did some very good work in that fight. I think Jan won that fight. I think that Jan won the second fight against Eljamain Sterling. Now, that was close. I'm not going to sit here and say it was a robbery that Eljamain won, but he clearly lost the fourth and the fifth rounds, and I think Jan could have won the first round. Like, it was very close. But especially the championship rounds, I mean, he wasn't able to get the takedowns. Jan was able to spin and take the back of Eljamain and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I, a lot of these fights that Jan loses, he lost the first fight to Eljamain via 
via disqualification with the knee to the grounded opponent. Obviously, we all know that. Um, one of the fights he had against Magomed Magomedov, one of the fights he lost back at ACB, I believe, was a split decision where a lot of people thought that Peter Jan won that fight. So a lot of the fights that Peter Jan loses are fights that people believe that he wins, but he leaves it in the judge's hands. But this is the difference. With that O'Malley fight, it was a three-rounder. If the O'Malley fight was a five-rounder, I believe Peter Jan would have won. Now, coulda, woulda, shoulda, it wasn't, so it doesn't matter. But a five-round fight against Marab Devalishvili, even though Marab has the wrestling advantage, even though Marab has the cardio, the relentless pressure, the forward pressure, and we've seen Jan struggle with heavy wrestlers like Aljamain Sterling. He struggled with the jiu-jitsu of Aljamain Sterling and not the takedowns of Aljamain Sterling. And that's where people seem to find some, you know, inaccurate facts. Oh my God, I can't talk today. Like people are thinking that Aljamain, just because Aljamain took the back of Peter Jan and rode him out and ground and pounded him and locked him in the, the body triangle and out grappled him, that uh, Marab's going to be able to do the same thing. No, Marab's not a jujitsu artist. Marab, I'm sure, does have submissions. I'm sure he can grab the neck of Peter Jan if he gives it to him. I sure he can, I'm sure he can take the back of Peter Jan. But with Marab, it's forward pressure. It's takedown entries. It's head on the inside single entries up against the cage. It's pushing Jan up against the cage and tiring him out. It's entering on strikes and pushing the opponent up against the cage. It's getting those takedowns and working ground and pound from the top. The one thing I will say is that I think Marab has more vicious ground and pound than Eljamain Sterling. You saw the ground and pound he was able to land after surviving huge knockdowns against Marlon Marais, and he was able to overwhelm him, take him down, land vicious elbows, hammer fist, hammer fist, elbows, hammer fist, hammer fist, basically knocking him out at the end of the first round, coming back in the second round, landing a right hand, using that to enter into a takedown, jumping on him and just putting him away with heavy ground and pound. Marab has very, very heavy ground and pound. And that is something that people are going to have to look out for because if he's able to get those takedowns on Jan and Jan can't work his way back up to the feet over and over and over again, eventually Marab will land that big ground and pound strike. He will be relentless on the top. And I don't know if Jan can survive the ground and pound of Marab Devalishvili. It's just can Marab get Jan to that position with the stellar takedown defense that we know Jan to have and the ability for him to download the data of his opponents to make adjustments mid-fight. I think Jan is one of the best fighters at making mid-fight adjustments and changing his game plan in order to find ways to win against his opponents. And I think that's going to be what we're going to see here against Marab. I think Marab will probably win the first round. He'll push Jan back, get him against the cage, probably land some good strikes. I think Marab will most definitely win the first round. I think he might win the second round. I know he's got cardio, so the cardio is going to be an issue because if Marab can keep up his pace for 25 minutes over the entirety of the fight, then he'll probably then he'll win. You know, he he will beat Jan, but I think eventually Jan's going to make the adjustments. It's going to be very hard for Marab to get those takedowns, and Marab doesn't have the jujitsu that. Eljamain Sterling has, which is going to lead to the control time on the floor. I know that he has the ability to get in on the hips, push Jan up against the cage, land strikes in the clinch, head on the inside single in the clinch, inside and outside trips, taking him down against the cage, holding him against the cage. He's going to have that ability, but he's not going to have the ability to control Peter Jan once the fight hits the mat. That is the difference between Marab's style of grappling and wrestling and the more grappling-heavy jiu-jitsu game of Eljamain Sterling paired with the wrestling that he has. Marab is a better wrestler. He's a better traditional amateur style wrestler than Eljamain Sterling. 
But Aljamain Sterling is a better, better positional grappler and submission artist. And position over submission and the ability to control Peter Jan once it hits the mat is what makes the difference. And I don't think Marab has the ability to control Jan even if he does get those takedowns. Jan's able to work back up to the feet. Jan's takedown defense is second to none. Even some of the takedowns that Aljamain got on Peter Jan, it was because Jan was like knocked himself off balance and was and you know gave Aljamain an opportunity to jump on him and take the back. There's a difference between that and Marab because yeah, Marab can jump on and take the back, but he's not going to be able to hold the back position like Aljamain did against Jan. And that's the big difference here because I think early the fight will be going towards the way of the machine. I think he'll probably win the first round, push Jan back. Jan usually takes the first round, round and a half off. And if this was a three round fight, 100% go with Marab because I think he wins a three rounder, but it's not. This is a five round fight. And the five-round fights are where Peter Jan is at his most dangerous. It's He's at his most cerebral. He's at his most technical. And he's going to be the best he's ever been in a 25-minute fight. I feel like Peter Jan was built for a 25-minute fight. And in the end of the third round, in the fourth round, in the fifth round, I think Peter Jan is going to make those adjustments, start to land those body kicks behind the same side hooks, start to land the one-two, start to land the one-two switch stands left straight, start to work those angles, start to be able to measure the distance against Marab, time the takedown attempts with upper cuts, knees, working trips of his own. We saw him time a takedown attempt on Eljamain with a knee to the body and then work an outside trip off of that knee. Jan has extreme explosiveness. He has such good reaction timing. And he's so fast with being able to transition between the striking and the grappling and the grappling and the striking mid-combination, especially in the clinch, that I think it's going to be a nightmare for Marab when we get to the championship rounds. I think we're going to get a late finish from the former champion in Peter Jan here. I could see a decision, but I think eventually the striking, the knees to the body, probably knees to the head, the elbows off the break in the clinch, you know, the one-twos, the slick boxing of Peter Jan, who, like I said, is a master of sport in boxing in Russia. He's one of the most technical strikers in the entire game of mixed martial arts. He's one of the most well-rounded fighters in all of mixed martial arts, and I think he's just a little bit outmatched. He's just a little bit of an overstep for Marab. I think Marab's outmatched here in terms of overall mixed martial arts game. Even though he has the wrestling, even though he has the cardio, which could work for him if he's able to control Jan with the wrestling. But he doesn't have the jiu-jitsu ability and the positional awareness, I believe, to be able to control a guy like Peter Jan for the entire 25 minutes. And once Jan is able to get to the positions he wants to get to, once Jan is able to land those combinations, the switch stance combos, the kicks to the body, the one-two head kicks, you know, the, the right hook to the straight left, to the right hook to the body, the cover counters, covering the big shots of... of um. Marab encountering with hooks on the same side, covering the body shots and coming up the middle with uppercuts, landing knees as Peter or as Marab tries to close the distance. I think he's going to have to be a little bit more choosy and picky with the way he sets up his kicks because he doesn't want Marab to catch him and work his takedowns. So we're going to see a lot of feints, a lot of stance switches, probably a lot of feinting the knee to step to the outside of the foot, the hook, and then the body kick when you're off on that outside foot angle. We're going to see a lot of fakes and feints from Jan, which are going to draw out the reactions of Marab and also make it his top. Uh, Shots a little bit more telegraphed, kind of like what we saw in the championship rounds of the second fight with Aljamain Sterling and in the first fight against Aljamain, making him shoot out of panic. And I think that's what we're going to see. And Marab is going to get pieced up in those championship rounds, caught with big boxing combinations, big knees, big punch kick combinations. And eventually, I think Peter Jan's going to put him away. So my pick is going to be the number two ranked Peter No Mercy Jan or Pelter No Mercy Jan 
to defeat the number three ranked Marab Devalishvili via a late fourth round TKO. It's going to be similar to the Aldo fight, but more in the wrestling aspect of Marab, just eventually walking into shots, overcommitting, you know, telegraphing his takedowns, panic shooting, and eventually just getting pieced up and put away. I'm telling you what, I know that the better, the more powerful and explosive striker is probably Marlon Marais than Peter Jan, but the more overall well-rounded striker, the more dangerous fighter for 25 minutes, a guy who has the gas tank to push to 25 minutes and pair it up with the striking and the overall more well-rounded game and who doesn't have the chin issues of Marlon, Jan is a nightmare matchup for Marab. And I also think Marab is a nightmare matchup for Jan if he's able to instill the game plan that he comes into the fight with. But with that lack of jujitsu capability or at least a jujitsu capability that we haven't seen pulled out of the pocket of the machine yet i don't think he gets the job done so the number two ranked peter no mercy yan to defeat marab devalishvili via fourth round tko when it comes to the betting i like peter yan on the money line even though he's at like minus 255 i love yan here um if you like marab go ahead and take him but i think peter yan wins this fight i like peter yan here um you're gonna look at his record but a lot of those losses are questionable so Jan is a good bet on the money line at minus 250 if you're going to parlay him. If you're not going to parlay him, then I would actually take the uh, either double chance method of victory with Jan via uh, knockout, TKO, or decision, or you take Peter Jan by a knockout, which I think might be at a plus 250. Let me see. It's going to be here somewhere. Um... Peter Yan to win by knockout is plus 250. I was right. So I like Yan by KOTKO at plus 250, and I like Peter Yan on the money line at minus 255. But the pick is no mercy. Piotr Yan to win via fourth round TKO over Marab the Machine Devalishvili. All right, that's going to be it for my UFC Vegas 71 preview predictions and breakdown. The fights come to us this Saturday night. From Las Vegas, Nevada, you can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many more. This UFC Vegas 71 breakdown will be uploaded to my YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast, at the Touch Em Up podcast, broken down into individual segments with edits for each individual fight that I've broken down. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast, or subscribe to the YouTube channel, I'm sorry, at the Touch Em Up podcast to help that grow. We're almost at 3,000 subscribers on the YouTube, so let's help that grow. If you're listening to the podcast on a audio podcast distributor, then make sure to go and subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm your host, Double M. This has been the UFC Vegas 71, Jan versus Devalishvili. Preview, predictions, and breakdown, and I'm out. Have a good night, and enjoy the fights this weekend. All right, and now we move to the co-main event of the evening in the UFC's heavyweight division between the number eight-ranked Alexander Drago Volkov, who comes into the bout with a record of, I believe, 35 victories with 10 defeats. We'll check real quick. 35 victories and 10 defeats going up against the formerly undefeated, um, losing a controversial decision in the number 13-ranked, 16-1 and Alexander Romanov. Romanov versus Volkov, the battle of the Alexanders. Who will come out as Alexander the Great, not Volkanovsky? Ha ha ha, LOL. Um, look, I think that this fight comes down to the grappling inefficiencies of Alexander Volkov. Like, look, Romanov was able to toss around Marcin Tibora. I mean, he was able to lift him up, 
taken backwards, body lock takedown, throws over and over and over again. Now, obviously, he grounded and pounded him and destroyed Marcin Tibor in the first round. Then he got tired. They went back and forth, and he lost a unanimous decision. It might have been split. Lost the decision to Tybora because he got tired and Tybora was able to outstrike him because he blew his wad in the first round by taking him down, outstriking him like Tybora landed no strikes. He got taken down multiple times. You know, he didn't get submitted, but he was getting grounded and pounded and just pieced up by Romanov. Romanov is a big grappler. And if you're able to take down Alexander Romanov, or I'm sorry, if you're able to take down Marcin Tybora that way, who actually has decent grappling on his side, um, you're going to be able to take down Volkov. Like on the feet, I think Volkov is 100% the more technical striker. He's a very economical fighter on the feet. He is a lot of inside and outside low kicks, jabs, left hooks, right hands, one one twos down the middle, you know, low kick, body kick, head kick, just picking you apart until he can find a kill shot to put you away, just like he did against Jerzinho Rosenstrike. He got into an exchange. You know, he got hurt, hit on the chin a couple times by Jerzinho, but was able to survive. And then he just found his shot up against the cage. Boom, a right hand, a straight right hand, which wobbled him. He jumped on him, hit him with a few more shots and put him away. He went back and forth in a very close fight against the former interim uh, UFC heavyweight champion in Cyril Bongamin Gan. And he won that. Even though he lost the fight via decision, going into that fifth round, I had it scored two rounds each. And then I gave Gon the fifth round, which scored him the decision. I know some people said it was 4-1 Cyril. I think it was 3-2. I think it was very close. And he went back and forth. He's a very technical striker. He has a lot of reach. He's got a lot of range that he's able to instill against a lot of fighters. But we've seen him have trouble with his takedown defense. I mean, he got countered with a, ta- a double leg takedown against Tom Aspinall. Aspinall immediately passed over into side control, got him into the straight arm lock and submitted him in the first round. When he fought Curtis Blades, he was able to get back up to his feet, work his way back up off the ground, but got taken down multiple times. Now, I don't think that Alexander Romanov is a better, like, amateur style wrestler than Curtis Blades, but I think he's a better Greco-Roman wrestler. So the trips inside and outside trips, the body lock takedowns are going to be a big weapon for him. It's going to be harder to get those against. um, Actually, it's going to be easier for him to get those against the taller fighter as well. I was going to say it was going to be harder, but it's not. It's going to be a little bit easier for him to get those trips against the fighter in Volkov, who's going to have the longer legs, who's going to be able to be there and with the inside trips, the outside trips, he's a five, he has a five inch height advantage and a five inch reach advantage does Alexander Volkov. And I see a lot of people siding with Volkov to win this fight. And I could see it if he's able to stop the early storm of Romanov, if he's able to stuff some takedowns, if he's able to keep it at the range he wants to keep it at, then yeah, absolutely. I think that Volkov's the much better striker. I think he can tag up Romanov on the feet and put him away. But based on the grappling inefficiencies, based on the issues that I've seen Volkov have with grapplers and the issues I've seen him have with grapplers who aren't even known as grapplers in their like overall MMA game, you know, pointing to Tom Aspinall, I think that Romanov's going to have his way with him. I think he's going to get in on the body lock, take him down, ground and pound him, eventually take the back and lock up a rear naked choke in the first round. I think it's another first round submission loss for Volkov. Now, I'm a big fan of Volkov. But I can't tell you to back him as an underdog in this spot. No way I would tell you that. I know there are some people out there who are saying pick Volkov as an underdog. 
Volkov's going to beat him. Volkov's going to be able to keep it on the feet and pick him apart. Yeah, if he's able to keep it on the feet, Volkov will outstrike him and probably finish Romanov or Cruz to a decision. But the thing is, you're not going to keep it on the feet. I know that he got tired against Tybora. I know he'll probably get tired in this fight, but he's going to be able to get Volkov down. And once he get those gets those takedowns and gets to the top position, like he's going to be able to submit him. He's going to be able to submit him or ground and pound him. So I think he gets in on the hips of Volkov early, inside trips, outside trips, drags him down to the ground, gets on the top position, passes into mount, lands big ground and pound. Volkov tries to get up. Romanov takes the neck after taking the back and gets a rear naked choke. So my pick is the number 13 ranked Alexander Romanov to defeat the number 11 ranked, right? Is he number 11 ranked or the number eight ranked? I'm sorry. UFC heavyweight and Alexander Drago Volkov and improved to 17 and one as a professional mixed martial artist to be a first round rear naked choke in the battle of the Alexanders Romanov will reign supreme, but betting line. Um, I don't like the bets at all. I don't like it. Um, yeah, I like Romanov to win, but based on the cardio issues I saw him have against Tybora, I wouldn't be surprised if Volkov can work his way back up to the feet and keep it at a distance and outstrike him in the second and third round. But I do think he gets him down, takes his back, and chokes him out in round one. So Alexander Romanov to win via first round rear naked choke. Betting-wise, stay away from it. And Span suffered that loss in the first round via rear naked choke to Anthony Smith. He got wobbled with a jab, then got caught with a left hook over the top of his right hand, I believe. And uh, Anthony Smith was able to jump on him, take the back, and get the rear naked choke. Out of 21 victories, he has six wins by way of KO, TKO, and 12 via submission. So when you break down this main event, most of the wins for both of these guys come by way of submission. They like to grab the neck. They like to grab the arm. Ryan Spann has a very, very solid guillotine, and it's very sneaky. And based on the fact that Krylov is such a heavy grappler and wrestler, I feel like his neck is going to be there for Spann to try to grab it and take it home with him. And if he leaves his neck out for Spann, I feel like Spann can get a submission. A lot of people are probably going to be riding with the submission side of Nikita Krylov because most of his win rate and most of his success comes via the route of the grappling, the takedowns, the top pressure, the submissions. And I feel like that's an avenue that we've talked about a lot when breaking down this card. A lot of guys on this card, a lot of fighters win via their grappling. A lot of the women, a lot of the men, it's a lot of heavy grapplers and people who have a lot of success with the grappling. Span is known as a knockout artist. He has good punching power, big power, but he can grab your neck just as quickly. And if you leave it out there in a rear, in a front choke, if Span hurts Krylov and Krylov shoots a bad takedown, Ryan Span's going to grab that neck and lock up that palm-to-palm -palm guillotine or the high elbow Marcelatine and get him out of there. I can easily see Ryan Span rocking Krylov and getting a submission. I could see him catching his neck and getting a submission. Against Paul Craig, he was dominating, landing big ground and pound, controlling him on the floor. He gave up one position. Krylov got locked in a triangle, and that was it. When it comes to Ryan Span's last few fights, he's on a two-fight win streak. He's won three out of his last five. His loss is coming to Johnny Walker via first round TKO. Um, was able to hurt him with some elbows and then hammer fist to the, what Safe Sayud said was the back of the head. And they were questionable, um, landing some big elbows and then eventually getting Ryan Spann out of there as he tried to shoot a takedown. And then he lost via rear naked choke in the first round to Anthony Smith. The loss to Johnny Walker came at 243 of round one. The loss to Anthony Smith, three minutes, 47 seconds into the first round. He was able to defeat... Iwan Kutelaba, that's a fight where I actually picked against Span, and I picked Kutelaba to be able to out-wrestle him, grapple him, ground and pound him, and just constantly get the takedowns. 
And Kute Laba was looking good. He got some good takedown spans, stuffed a few of them, but he got in a bad scramble, left his neck out there, and span locked it up in a guillotine. And it was a tight guillotine. That's why I think if Krylov leaves his neck out there, it's going to be a wrap for him. Like you cannot be lazy with the way you set up your takedowns. You have to shoot head high. You can't shoot with your head down. You can't leave your head in vulnerable positions. Kind of like the Mike Malott and Johan Lines fight. Like Lines cannot leave his neck in a bad position because Mike Malott will grab it. The same thing goes with Ryan Spann. You leave your neck out there in a bad position. Um, Spann's going to rip your head off. And then against Dominic Reyes, that's a fight where I was heavily on the side of Dom Reyes. I thought that he was going to be able to out-technique Ryan Spann on the feet. I thought he was going to be able to exploit some of the defensive irresponsibility and the chin issues that we seem to have seen from Ryan Spann, especially in the fight with Anthony Smith. I mean, he got rocked by a jab, got rocked by a check hook. The jab wobbled him. Even in the uh, Dominic Reyes fight, Dominic was able to catch him with a check hook as he stepped in it and looked to back him up and wobble him a little bit. But then that's when Ryan Spann cracked him with the jab and the right hand, but basically knocked him out with a jab. And then the right hand was just a formality, a vicious knockout over who many people believe to be an uncrowned light heavyweight champion with his performance against John Jones at UFC 247, which coincidentally was the last time we saw John Jones inside the octagon. But this is a tough fight to call because it's really going to be a story of can Ryan Spann get Krylov out of there within the first two rounds? And if he can't, Will Krylov dominate him? Will he take him down? Will he constantly outwork him? Will he ground and pound him? Will he land some big shots on the feet and tire out Superman and eventually either ground and pound him, hurt him on the feet and lock up a submission and get him out of there? Like, I don't expect the fight to go to decision. This fight is a combined finish rate of 89.5%. So you're almost nine out of 10 times going to be getting a finish, whether it's Span knocking out Krylov or getting his neck in a guillotine or Nikita Krylov being able to hurt him on the feet, take him down, ground and pound him, or lock up a submission in his own right. I feel like a submission is live on either side because Span is a guy who's going to look to grab your neck, who's going to look to take you out, like we said, if he hurts you. But on the same path, I feel like Krylov is going to be more active in terms of searching for those submissions, which in turn can leave him open for counters and also leave him open for the submissions of Span himself. If I was going to pick a win method for either guy, that is the most likely path to victory. I think the most likely way that either Span or Krylov wins this fight is via submission. I really think that there's the submission upside on either guy. I don't think the fight goes the distance, like I said, 9 out of 10 times. You know, you're looking at a case where, you know, they're going to get the opponent out of there or they're going to be finished themselves. Even the the seven losses of Ryan Spann, he's been finished in five out of his seven losses. Either of these guys are kill or be killed. Spann and Krylov, they're kill or be killed. And that's what you could call this main event. Spann versus Krylov, Krylov versus Spann, kill or be killed. That's what this is. And somebody's going to get knocked out or submitted and it's not going to go to decision. Now, do I want to jinx it? No, obviously not. But that's how I see it going down. The, the fact is Ryan Spann is the sharper striker. I feel like he has better power. His technique has been sharpened up after that loss to Anthony Smith. But he does leave himself open in certain aspects. Krylov is sneaky sharp on the feet. He's sneaky sharp. He has better kicking. I feel like he has a better kicking game than Spann. And I feel like Spann has better boxing and counterability with the hands on the feet. And we've seen in the Vulcan Uzdemir fight with Nikita Krylov, like he was getting hurt and rocked multiple times in that fight. Came back, hurt Vulcan Uzdemir. 
pushed him in, get it, got in his face, took him down. Like Krylov's a fighter, and I think Krylov's cardio is going to carry up way better than Ryan's span over five rounds. If it gets past the midpoint of the second round, gets into the third round, gets into the fourth, gets into the fifth, that's always going to favor the style of Nikita Krylov because he can push a pace. He can push the grappling. He can push the top pressure. He can get in your face and continue to push the pace. Now, do I think he's going to be able to push the pace for 25 minutes? No, but I think he can push it far enough to where he could get Span out of there because I expect Span to fade after the midpoint of the second round and going into the third. I feel like Span is good. He's he sharpened up his game. His boxing has gotten better. He hasn't rushed in as much as he used to, but he still does rush in and look for a finish. He likes to really just get you out of there as quickly as he can. But another thing you have to look at is Ryan Span said that going into this fight, this is the first time we really saw are going to see him train like a, a professional mixed martial artist. He said that in before the Dom Reyes fight, or I'm sorry, after the Dominic Reyes fight as well, that that was one of the first times he actually did a full training camp. One of the first times he actually took the fight game serious. And that's something where do you believe what Span says? Or do you feel like he said that before because he didn't, because he just wanted something to say? I'm going to believe Ryan Span and say that maybe he didn't take it serious before because when you have the power to shut people's lights out, when you get used to having that one touch knockout power or that combination that just puts everybody out, you kind of fall in love with that part of your game. And then you shed all the other parts of your game away and just focus the dot site and the red eye dot site on that one aspect of your game where you're so good at it. And you kind of forget about the game, the parts of the game that could sharpen up your biggest weapon and also set up the smoke screens to give you an opportunity and an avenue to land your big weapon without making it so telegraphed and predictable. And I feel like that's what Ryan Spann has kind of become. And if he's more taking this more serious, if he is finally taking this like a professional, I expect to see a different Ryan Spann. I expect to see the same Krylov, but Krylov has power on the feet. He has knockout ability, but I don't think he's going to want to play around on the feet with Ryan Span too much. I see a lot of people leaning towards Krylov, and honestly, I think this is a 50-50 fight. I think if it gets past the midpoint of the second round into the third and go, and you know so on, then obviously it would favor Nikita Krylov with the cardio, the grappling, the top pressure, the wrestling, the submission upside. But in that first round, round and a half, two rounds, Ryan Span is live to shut Nikita Krylov down, to put him out, to finish him. And that's why if you're looking at the betting side, the only bet I would take on either side of this fight is fight doesn't go the distance or under 2.5 rounds. And judging on how the lines have been lately on DraftKings, on whatever sports book you use, that's probably going to be juiced to a minus 250, minus 300, or at least a minus 195 to minus 200. The, the books are getting smarter at how to line the over-unders with MMA fights. And it's actually become a little bit harder to make money betting on fights because they're getting smarter with the way that they approach these over-under lines. They're actually taking into consideration how these fighters win their last few fights. And they're doing more research and becoming more knowledgeable on the game. But there's always ways to make money. Honestly, if I'm going to tell you what to do in terms of betting this fight, I would stay away from it completely. I wouldn't touch the main event with a 10-foot pole because I could see either man finishing this fight. And I think the best way to bet the fight is fight doesn't go to decision or the under two and a half. But at the same time, I think those are going to be so heavily favored and so heavily oversaturated that you're probably not going to get good value on it. So I would stay away from it, you know, in terms of a betting aspect. But when it comes to who I think is going to win the fight, um, 
I actually think Krylov's going to get put away here. I, I can see Krylov winning with the ways that I already talked about, but I feel like his defensive ability on the feet, which is something that has been a, a common, you know, denominator in terms of breaking down UFC Vegas 70. I think his defense isn't the best. And when you have bad defense, which Span has bad defense in and of himself as well, um, I think that the power of Ryan Span. we saw Volkan Uzdemir hurt Nikita Krylov multiple times, wobble him. And I think Volkan has more power than Ryan Span. I actually like Volkan Uzdemir versus Ryan Span as a fight. I think that that would be a very interesting fight for this light heavyweight division if Span gets past Krylov. Um, but I think eventually he's going to hurt Krylov, drop him, you know, rock him. Krylov's going to shoot a bad takedown and Span's going to get the guillotine choke for a submission. I think he actually is able to submit Nikita Krylov. So I'm going to go with Ryan Superman Span, the number, what is he ranked? Eight in the division. Let's see, the number eight ranked light heavyweight to improve the 22 and seven and submit the number six ranked Nikita Krylov via a second round guillotine choke. I could see Krylov winning this fight, which is why I say to stay away from it from a betting perspective. But I'm going to go with Ryan Span to win via second round guillotine choke. All right, that's going to be it for my UFC Vegas 70 preview predictions and breakdown and my analysis of UFC Vegas 69. I will have a hype style video like I did for Mahachev and Volkanovsky on my YouTube channel for the main event of UFC 2. Um, oh my God, I can't, I can't remember the name. UFC 285, Jones versus Gone. I'll have more hype videos for that as well. And the predictions for UFC 285 will be coming out very early next week. I cannot wait to break down that card. It is stacked from top to bottom. I mean, Rachmanov versus Jeff Neal. Dreykus Duplessis versus Derek Brunson. Jones versus Gone. Grosso versus Shevchenko. I mean, the list goes on and on. Cody Garbrandt against Trevin Jones. There's so many good fights on that card, and I can't wait to get into that. If you like the Touch Em Up podcast and if you support what we be putting down on this show every week, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcasts. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many, many more. Your ABCs of podcast distributors, baby. I'm your host, Double M. This has been UFC Vegas 70. Span versus Krylov or Krylov versus Span preview predictions and breakdown. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend. All right, now we move to the main card with the main card opener. Well, not a main card opener, but the main card opener for us. In the UFC's bantamweight division, you've got the number 14 ranked Saeed Nurmagomedov. No, he is not related to the Habib Islam Abdulmanaf Nurmagomedov family. He's his own Nurmagomedov. Coming into the fight with a record of 17-2, and two, coming off of that second round uh, guillotine choke or ninja choke submission. I believe it was a guillotine choke against... No, it was a... No, it was a ninja choke. It was a ninja choke. The front choke, the ninja choke against Sadyakub Kakramanov. I picked Kakramanov in that fight, but that's besides the point. And he's going up against another member of Factory X under coach Mark Montoya in Jonathan Dragon Martinez. When it comes to the betting line, Saeed, or, uh, Saeed Nurmagomedov is sitting at a minus 230, and Jonathan Martinez is at a plus 195. I'm going to check that real quick just to double check because the UFC odds sometimes are not accurate. So let's check this out. At least the UFC odds on the UFC website. Um, come on, where is it at? Okay, yeah, they it's not accurate. So Saeed Nurmagomedov is actually minus 240. Jonathan Martinez plus 200 underdog. 
going to be honest right now. I think that fight line should be a lot closer. I would line Saeed at like the highest, a minus 195. And then I would have Martinez come back at like a plus 160. I think that's about where the fight should be lined at. I do not think that Saeed Nurmagomedov should be lined that high. I know he got that submission victory of, over Kakramanov, but before he caught that sub, he was getting dominated. Like if he didn't get that sub, he was losing that fight 100%. He was getting taken down, out-wrestled, out-grappled, thrown around by Kakramanov, which is what I thought was going to happen in the fight. I thought the wrestling, the takedown ability, the top pressure, the ground and pound of Kakramanov was going to be able to just run right through Saeed Nurmagomedov. And that's what was happening. But he kept putting his neck in the position to be caught in a guillotine or a front choke, kind of like the Josh Frem Trayshawn Gore fight, kind of like Josh Fremd against... Uh, Anthony Hernandez, Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, like they, they put their neck in this position all the time. And when you're a wrestler, you're used to shooting head on the outside. So you can lift your head up, eyes to the skies and drive to the double leg or lift your head up, turn the corner, drive to a single leg, turn the corner, cut the corner, get the single head on the outside, single head on the inside, single. Like the wrestlers are always going to be there for that front choke or the guillotine choke. Like it's always going to be there. And he's going up against Jonathan Martinez, who is a big kicker. And so is Saeed Nurmagomedov. He is the one Nurmagomedov, even though he's not related to the Nurmagomedov family. And the way you can tell that is because he's, yes, he has grappling. He has a grappling ability. He has submission upside, but he's more of a kicker. This guy is a striker at heart. He loves straight punches. His lead leg, the lead left leg, it's kind of similar to Umar Nurmagomedov. He's very good with the lead left high kicks, the spinning back kicks to the body, the knees to the body. He's a very quick kicker, and he's very good off the lead leg, and he's an orthodox fighter. Now, going up against the southpaw in Jonathan Martinez, Martinez is going to be looking to get that outside foot, and Martinez is a very technical and cerebral fighter. He's going to be a kick-heavy approach. Just like Saeed, they're both going to have a kick-heavy game coming into this matchup. Jonathan Martinez is going to be looking to step to the outside of the lead left foot of Saeed and land the left kick to the body. He's going to be looking to attack the inside low kick against Nurmagomedov, and then he's going to be looking to go up top to the head with the left head kick, follow it up with the straight left behind it, the check right hook, the left inside low kick, the check right hook, the left body kick, the check left hook, the right head kick or the check right hook, the left head kick. Like he's going to be looking to keep that distance and keep this fight at kicking range. But here's the thing. Normally he can do that, but he hasn't faced a kicker with the technique or speed and elusiveness that Saeed Nurmagomedov has. Like Nurmagomedov can throw front kicks, deep kicks to the face, um, question mark kicks, spinning hook kicks, spinning back kicks to the body. He's very in and out, kind of like a traditional martial arts style, very Wonder Boy-esque. Not the same thing, but just the way he moves in and out and moves and throws his kicks, they're very fast. He's a faster kicker than Jonathan Martinez, and that's something that I think Martinez is not going to be used to. Martinez is a guy who can get finishes, and he surprised me by getting the finish over Cub Swanson by just attacking the inside leg low kick all the time. But then he was able to chamber that into a knee up top to the head after landing so many inside kicks, getting Cub to change his level, cover up, and try to check it. He landed that knee up top to the head before he was able to get the low kick finish in the latter rounds. Now, I had Martinez beating Swanson via decision. I had Martinez beating Vince Morales via decision. Like, this guy is a decision fighter. He can get finishes, but the way he fights is just very patient, very outside fighter, kind of staying at kicking range the whole time. He can enter into punching range, but he likes to stay just outside or just inside that kicking range to be able to execute his game. Huge power left back kicks to the body. Huge power left inside low kicks, left head kicks. Like that is what Jonathan Martinez is known for. 
And when you look at Saeed, this is going to be a fighter where Jonathan Martinez can't really win that battle. I don't think he can win the kicking battle against a guy in Saeed. I think the only way he's able to get to Saeed Nurmagomedov if, is if he's able to beat him in the boxing range or get inside and try to tie him up. But Martinez has never really been known as a grappler. And I don't think he's going to be able to out grapple Saeed Nurmagomedov. Like even though he has gotten taken down, even though his takedown defense was tested and it didn't work well against Saeed Yakub Kakramanov, Martinez isn't the same level of wrestler of a Kakramanov and it's not even close. And I think that the game that Martinez is used to playing isn't going to work that well against Saeed, who's going to be the faster fighter at the game plan Martinez is used to instilling in all of his fights. Saeed's going to be more in and out. He's going to be more elusive. He's going to be able to throw the right body kick, the right low kicks, the right head kicks a lot faster than Martinez. Martinez is quick. He's not as fast as Saeed. And Saeed's kicking speed is going to give Martinez a lot of trouble. I think it's going to leave him stationary to get hit with the boxing of Saeed because he's not used to fighting a kicker the ask of Saeed Nurmagomedov. So he's going to be stationary. He might be a little gun shy, which is going to open up the boxing of Nurmagomedov, which might make Martinez shoot and potentially could leave him open for submission attempts like Cody Stamen. Stamen was forced to shoot because of the speed and power of the kicking techniques of Saeed. There's no telegraph. There's no windup. It's just right from the hip, question mark kick, left or right round kick, spinning back kick to the body, right low kick. Like there's no windup. There's no telegraph. And Martinez is a very good kicker as well. He doesn't have a lot of wind-up either. He's very good at setting the feints, very good at stepping the outside foot. We could get a fight that's going to be a staring match where they're kind of, you know, staring at each other in the mirror, kind of not really doing too much because they're kind of used to fighting a similar game plan. But I think the speed and aggressiveness of Saeed Nurmagomedov is going to make him a big problem for Martinez, who fights at a similar game plan or fights a similar style, but isn't as fast or sharp as Saeed. Like, it's going to be close. I don't think Martinez is going to be blown out of the water. And it wouldn't surprise me if he was able to find a shot on Saeed and hurt him, or if he was able to hurt him with the low kicks. Because I think the low kicks for Jonathan Martinez to the inside of the lead left leg of Saeed Nurmagomedov are going to be a big weapon, and that could also set up the body kicks. But if he gets into grappling exchanges with Saeed Nurmagomedov, even though he's not known as a grappler, I feel like he will be able to out-grapple Jonathan Dragon Martinez, and I think he's going to be too fast for him on the feet. So I'm going to go with the number 14-ranked Saeed Nurmagomedov to improve to, I believe, 18-2 and two as a professional mixed martial artist. What's his record? Yeah, so he's 17 and 2 right now. I believe he'll get the job done against the Dragon and improve to 18 and 2 via 29-28 unanimous decision. I usually side with Martinez. You can go back and listen to my podcast. I've sided sided with him multiple times. I've sided with him via decision. I picked him against Cub Swanson even though I picked him by decision. I just think that this matchup is like the perfect kryptonite to the style of Jonathan Martinez because he's faster, slicker and quicker at the techniques that Martinez is so effective with. And he also has the submission upside, which I know Martinez has gotten some submissions, I believe, in his career. I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. I'm going to check that right now. He's got two submissions out of 17 wins, but he's not a grappler and he's not a, a submission artist at the level of Saeed. Even though he's not known as a grappler, Nurmagomedov would be able to out-grapple Jonathan Martinez. So I think he just... Fights his style, is quicker, slicker, more technical than Martinez. And Martinez has trouble closing the distance. And even when he does, uh, Nurmagomedov's able to tag him with some good straight punches and hooks as he tries to close the distance and crash the pocket. And he's able to cruise his way to a decision. I think it'll be close. 
But I think eventually Saeed's going to pull away. Saeed Nurmagomedov's going to pull away. So 29-28 unanimous decision for the number 14 ranked Saeed Nurmagomedov over Jonathan Dragon Martinez. Betting perspective, to be honest, I don't like this fight on the money line. I don't like prop bets. I don't like anything. I think if you want to play the underdog, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it. I think just stay away from it altogether. I don't think Saeed should be a minus 230, minus 240. Um, I, I think just stay away from this fight all around. So betting, stay away from Nurmagomedov and Martinez. But the pick is Saeed Nurmagomedov to win via 29-28 unanimous decision. All right, and the next fight we're going to break down is a fight in the UFC's bantamweight division. Between longtime veteran of mixed martial arts and longtime UFC veteran in Rafael Asuncao going up against dangerous Davy Grant, who is a UFC veteran in his own right and a former Ultimate Fighter alum. I believe he was on Team Bisping against Team Henderson, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong, but I know he was on the Ultimate Fighter. Let me see if I can pull that up. Let's see, go back. here all right well it's not gonna work right now man like i swear i try to use these websites sometimes to like get the correct you know stats and stuff for you but man sure dog really needs to fix its freaking internet speed and the speed of this web page because it freezes all the time and it's not my internet because I don't have this problem on like any other websites that I use for MMA or anything like that. But either way, let's get back to what we were trying to talk about. So we'll go to Davy Grant against Asun Sal. And let's see. Come on. All right. Davy Grant, 14 and 6 overall. Ultimate Fighter Season 18. Okay, so that wasn't the um that wasn't the Henderson and Bisping one. So I forgot who his coach was. I can't think of it, but either way, he was a former Ultimate Fighter, a Sun Sao, huge UFC veteran, fought some of the best guys in the sport. And this is a good fight, man. This is a fight where you know, you look at a Sun Sal's last fight against Victor Henry. That was a fight where I was extremely and supremely confident in La Mangosta, Victor Henry, who actually fights on the card as well against Tony Gravely. I was supremely confident in Victor Henry to get past Rafaela Sun Sal. I thought he was going to knock him out. I thought he was going to piece him up on the feet after the performance we saw him have in his UFC debut against Tyone Barcelos, where although it was back and forth, you know, he was able to instill his will on Barcelos. He was able to push him back. He was able to pressure him. He was able to hurt him at certain points. He didn't drop him, but he looked really good in a fight where he was like a plus 450, plus 500 underdog, or plus 350, somewhere around there. Yeah, I think it was like plus 290, plus 390, somewhere in that range. But he was a huge underdog, and he dominated that fight. Like, yeah, he got hit with some big shots from Barcelos, but Barcelos is a very clean technical striker. And a Sun Sao, yeah, he got hit with some, some shots at some points, but he was able to counter the kicks of Henry. Henry is a big kicker. He's a big, active kicker. And Asunsa was able to counter him with the straight left, switch to orthodox, land the overhand right over some of the front kicks and the body kicks, you know, step back and counter with straight punches and hooks. He constantly changes stances, does Asunsa. And Asunsa is a very economical fighter. He's a guy who's not going to throw, 
you know, four or five punch combinations. It's going to be two shots at the most, one or two shots. He's going to hit you with a straight shot. He's going to catch your kick counter with a hook. He's going to land the one, one, two. He's going to land the one, two, switch to southpaw from orthodox, land the right hook straight left down the middle, switch back to orthodox front teep kick up the middle jab one, two overhand, right counter, catch the kick overhand, right, switch southpaw back you into the straight left. Now move you back over, right hook, straight left, overhand left. He's very economical, but he's a smart fighter. And that's what led him to a lot of big wins in his UFC career. I mean, a Sun Sao has a victory over TJ Dillashaw. He has a decision victory over Rob Font. He has a decision victory over the current UFC bantamweight champion in Aljamain the Funkmaster Sterling. But he's on a rough patch. I mean, the guy's been beat in, I think, four out of his last five fights. He got knocked out by Cody Garbrandt. He got submitted by Mar Magic Marlon Moraes. He got knocked out by Ricky Simone. He beat Victor Henry, you know, breaking the losing skid. But he lost the rematch to TJ Dillashaw. I mean, the guy just had a little bit of a rough patch after being a guy in the UFC who was not just the litmus test, but was constantly one or two fights away from a title shot at 135 pounds. But it was always that one fight that would get him to that title shot that he would end up fumbling the bag and losing. And that's why he never got a title shot. But he was always the top test for every fighter in that bantamweight division to see if they could get to the top of the weight class. And when you look at Dangerous Davy Grant, I mean, he's really come come into his own in recent years. I mean, the guy's got a knockout victory over Jonathan Martinez, the only guy to ever knock out Martinez, who is uh, actually fighting in the next fight we're going to break down on the card. But he's fighting against Saeed Nurmagomedov, but he was able to catch him with that switch step, right hook to the body, and the left hook up top to the head. The thing about Davy Grant that I like against a Sun Tzu is his volume. Like I said, a Sun Tzu's one, two punches at max. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get a third punch out of him in a combination. Davy Grant is constantly switching stances. One, one, two, one, two, right hook, right hook to the body, right hook, right hook to the body, switch back orthodox, one, one, two, right hook, left head kick, switching, spinning hook kick. I mean, he's constantly throwing volume. He's a pressure fighter. He tries to break you. He holds a decision victory, I believe, over uh, Marlon Chito Vera, who's coming up against Corey Sandhagen in just a few short weeks. I believe in two weeks, Marlon Vera is going to be fighting against... Uh, Corey Sandhagen. I don't know why I couldn't think of the name, but I believe he did defeat uh, Marlon Vera via decision back in the day. I could be wrong, but we're going to check that. Yeah, he beat him via unanimous decision at UFC Fight Night 84 back in February 2016. Then they just had their rematch uh, in June of 2021 at UFC on ESPN 25, where the fight was still back and forth, but Vera did more damage. The elbows of the pressure caught the pressuring Davy Grant stepping in, and he was constantly getting hit with big elbows, big shots, and hurt multiple times on the feet. He was getting out grappled, outpaced, but early on, man, he probably won the first round. Like he was doing very well. And it's because of the awkward angles, it's because of the constant stance changes the right hook to the body, the right hook up top. The switch stance, right hook to the body, left hook to the head. The 1-1-2, one, one, switch right hook, left hook kick to the head, back to orthodox. 1-1-2, one, one, left hook, switch southpaw. He's constantly on that pulley system. He's constantly switching orthodox, southpaw, southpaw to orthodox, and vice versa. And the pressure and the overall volume of Davy Grant is something that's going to give an economical fighter and a technical fighter in Rafael Asuncao. Yes, give him opportunities to find counters against a guy who's going to be coming forward 
full steam ahead. But at this point where a son Sal's 40 years old, he's late in his career. Like he he's been knocked out. He's been on a losing skid. He got knocked out by Ricky Simone, who doesn't get a whole lot of knockouts in his career. That volume is going to eventually drown a Sun Sao. And yeah, he might be able to time the pressure of Davy Grant with some takedowns in wrestling. I think the best option for Rafael Asuncao to win this fight is to use his takedowns, use his grappling, and tire out the pressure fighter in Davy Grant and to counter the forward pressure of Davy Grant with the wrestling counter takedowns, counter doubles, counter singles, counter body locks. If he stands on the feet with Davy Grant, a guy who has so much volume, who switches stances, who has big power in his punches, who can mix up his combinations, throw punches and kicks seamlessly, he's going to get finished and he's going to get knocked out. Like we've seen a Sun Sao's chin has failed him recently. And yes, it was against big, heavy power punchers, but I don't think Simone is really that big of a power puncher. And he put him away in the first round. I think Davy Grant can catch him with that switch right hook to the body, left hook up top to the head. I think he can catch him with a right hand, a right hook, a head kick, etc., etc. Like he can catch Davy or a Sun Sao on the chin and put him away. And I actually think that's what Davy Grant does. I think he catches a Sun Sao on the chin. And the durability of a Sun Sal fails him once again this late in his career. And although Davy Grant is a minus 140 favorite, I really like Davy Grant in this spot. If you're more on the side of the grappling and wrestling pressure of a Sun Sal, then I could see you favoring him to win this fight based off the forward pressure and the counter wrestling ability that a Sun Sal is going to need to instill in order to win this fight. But based off the recent performance against Davy with Davy Grant against you know, Marlon Chito Vera, the performance he had where he went to decision with Adrian Yanez and they went back and forth for a little bit. Yanez clearly won the fight, but they went back and forth. And that was a fight where I thought Davy Grant was going to get put away, you know, and then the knockout over Louis Smolka, the back and forth fight with Marlon Vera. Like, I think that this is Davy Grant's time. I think that this is dangerous times for Rafael Asuncao, and I think Davy Grant puts him away. He catches him with that switch dance, right hook to the body, the left hook up top, or a counter check right hook and he puts him out. So my pick is Dangerous Davy Grant to defeat Rafaela Sunsau via a second-round knockout victory off that switch dance hook to the body and the left hook up top or a check hook as a Sunsau tries to pressure. Um, when it comes to the betting, I bet against a Sunsau with Victor Henry, and Henry was a big favorite, and Henry kind of shit the bed for me. So I think that within, when it comes to me, I'm going to stay away from this fight from a betting perspective on either side. If I'm going to tell you what to pick, I like the favorite in Davy Grant at minus 140. I would expect him to get to like a minus 165, minus 175, closer to fight night. Like by Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week, I think Grant's going to move up to minus 160, minus 155, minus 170, somewhere in that range. But if I'm going to tell you a money line bet, I like Davy Grant. But if you're favoring the grappling and the counter pressure, the counter wrestling off the pressure of Grant, then you could take a Sun Sao and I wouldn't fade you because I was wrong about him last time going up against Victor Henry. But Grant's more proven in the UFC. He's fought the tougher competition like compared to Victor Henry against a Sun Sao. And at this point in a Sun Sao's career, I just can't back him. I know he got the win over Henry. I know he had some good counter striking in that fight. But I think Davy Grant's pressure, power, and just overall volume is going to put a Sun Sao away. So dangerous Davy Grant to defeat Rafael Sun Sao via second round knockout off that switch stance hook to the body and hook to the head betting line. I like just Davy Grant on the money line. Um, if Davy Grant by KO is like upwards of plus 300 plus 250 plus 300 plus 400, then I would say to take Davy Grant by KO. But if you're not getting a big juicy money line, 
or if you're not getting a big juicy prop bet on that, then I would say just play the money line if you want to play it. But this is not one of my favorite bets on the card. All right, guys. Sorry about that little hiccup during the intro. I feel like I couldn't speak. I was, I was stumbling over some of my words. Oh, my God. But either way, we're back for UFC Vegas 71, Jan versus Devalishvili predictions, breakdown, and betting tips. Man, this is a great card, and you already know that Jan is my boy. Peter Jan is my boy. I've sang his praises ever since I saw him compete at UFC 238 against Jimmy Rivera live at the United Center in Chicago, Illinois. That is the night that I became a fan of No Mercy. Coincidentally, has the nickname of one of the greatest wrestling games ever on the Nintendo 64. Hint, hint, wink, wink. But I'm a huge fan of Jan. But this fight against Devalishvili is not easy. This is a very difficult matchup for Peter Jan. But I like the fact that it's five rounds. And we're going to get to the main event, obviously, when we get there. And I'll give you a good breakdown. But we're going to be breaking down, I believe, it's six fights. And then for the Nikita Krylov and Ryan Spann fight, which is the feature bout of the evening. I will actually be inserting my prediction from my UFC Vegas 70 podcast and uh, just reinserting it. Even though it's three rounds instead of five, I still feel like the prediction holds a lot of weight. So I'm just going to insert that into this podcast episode. And then we're going to go from there. But we're going to break down. I'll give you the fights we're going to break down here. We're going to do Peter Yan and Devalishvili, obviously. We're going to do Volkov versus Romanov. I'll have the Krylov and Span breakdown. We're going to do Saeed Nurmagomedov and Jonathan Martinez. And then on the prelims, we're going to be breaking down Rafaela Sunsau and Davey Grant, followed by Cedricus Dumas, SD Dumas from the Contender Series versus Josh Fremd. And then I can also, you know what, I think that's going to be it. So on the prelims, we're going to do SD Dumas and Josh Fremd, Sunsau versus Davey Grant. And then the main card, we're going to have Saeed Nurmagomedov versus Jonathan Martinez. Nikita Krylov versus Ryan Spann, Volkov versus Romanov, and then Jan versus Devalishvili. I'm not going to do the whole card, but if you listen to the podcast, if you're listening to this on YouTube with the edits and everything, then you know what the deal is. We don't break down the entire card, but I will give you the best plays for the week as well as we get to each of the fights. But we're going to kick it off with the prelims in the UFC's middleweight division. With about between the Contender Series alum and the street fighting legend, allegedly, in Cedricus S.D. Dumas, who comes in as an undefeated professional mixed martial artist at 7-0, going up against the Factory X prodigy, the big, big, big anchor of the Factory X team out there with Coach Mark Montoya and Josh Fremd, the former, I believe he was a former, not LFA champion, maybe it was LFA Let's see. He was a former champion in another organization. Was it uh was it LFA? Let's see. Josh Fremd. I can pull it up here. He was yeah, LFA. Okay, I was right. So he's a former champion in LFA, I believe, and then came over to the UFC. Didn't have the best success, but this is still a good fight. Uh SD Dumas and Josh Fremd is a great matchup. So we're gonna kick it off with this one and you know, let's get it going. So when I look at this fight, I see Josh Fremd in the UFC came in under coach Mark Montoya, Factory X, you know, and that was his kind of star pupil that hadn't been in the UFC. If you go back and listen to one of the interviews I did with Mark Montoya on the podcast, 
who I believe I had on a few times, at least two or three times, you can listen to him speak very highly of Josh Fremd. And I believe when I did that interview, Fremd had a fight coming up that day or the next day because he had just done weigh-ins with him, I believe. So Josh Fremd. But in the UFC, you look at Fremd, and he's 9-4 and four overall as a mixed martial artist, but he hasn't gotten a win yet in the UFC. He's 0-2. He came in on short notice to fight Anthony Fluffy Hernandez at UFC 273. Back in April of 2022, he lost via unanimous decision. He had some decent striking. His scrambling ability to work his way back up to the feet was very good. Um, he he didn't really, you know, settle for positions. But the problem is the grappling, the jujitsu, um, and Anthony Hernandez being able to get the top position and superior position with the grappling, and then go to the backside control and try to lock up that arm in guillotine from the back where you sh you grab the head in the arm, you spin it around, you shoot your one leg with the shin across the belly, you throw the other leg to the opposite hip to stop the pass into half guard and potentially into side control. Um, Hernandez, that's his bread and butter. He caught the Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and the black belt hunter in Hadolfo Vieira in that, in one of the biggest upsets of the year at UFC uh, 258. But you know, that's his bread and butter in the submission attempts, the Darce chokes, the guillotine chokes, you know, switching from the Armin guillotine to the Darce, going to the Anacondas, I believe. He just wasn't able to get much offense going because he was always on the defensive due to the grappling ability of Hernandez and the pace and the pressure. But he did well in the second round, was able to get some good work done, work his way back up to the feet. He was able to get some takedowns on Hernandez as well and work from the top position, threatened with submissions of his own. But he's a better striker than a lot of the fighters he fights. And then you look at the Treshawn Gore fight. He was coming back. He was building momentum in that fight in that second round. Or towards the end of the first round, it looked like Gore was getting tired. He was really building momentum, but he kept sticking his neck out, shooting the head on the outside singles or the double legs up against the cage. And Gore had threatened with the guillotine before, but he was able to work his way out of it. But eventually he got caught with the guillotine choke. Uh, he went palm to palm with it, arched his back, got his hips in as... Uh, Frems tried to shoot the takedown. Gore was able to move his hips forward, arch his back, pull up on it, and get that guillotine. You saw Frem try to kick off the cage and roll to his back, but the guillotine was so tight, and Gore was actually able to circle off and kind of almost sit on his butt off on the angle against Josh Frem. So Frem went to his back, but since Gore wasn't on top of him and he was able to get off to the side and really arch his back and able to push his chest forward to get more angles on it, he choked him unconscious and Fremd went out. So he's 0-2 in the UFC, but coming into the UFC, he had a knockout loss in the first round to Gregory Robocop Rodriguez at LFA 108, but then he came back with a unanimous decision victory over Renato Valente and then a FAC 12 win over Joel Bauman via rear naked choke. Out of his career, he's got nine victories and four defeats. Seven of his wins come by way of finish. He's got four KO, TKOs, and three submissions. Out of his losses, two come by decision, one by submission, and one by knockout, which came to Gregory Robocop Rodriguez. The submission obviously came on the side of, uh, what's it called? I can't even think of his name. Came on the side of Treshawn Gore, who we just talked about. Now, looking at his opponent in Cedricus Dumas. Now, look, I didn't know much about this guy. I didn't know anything about this guy going into the Contender Series. And I actually bet against him on the Contender Series. This was a fight where I didn't do too much research. And that's one of the things I regret 
when I was betting on the contender series is like, I didn't really do a lot of tape study because I didn't do predictions for the contender series on my YouTube or my podcast. When the contender series comes back, if that's something you guys are interested in, then I definitely can do it. But looking into Dumas, man, this guy, although he is new to the UFC, he got the contender series contract with a beautiful uh, palm to palm guillotine on the on the show. I mean, early in the first round, I think 25, 30 seconds into the first round, he was able to lock up that palm to palm guillotine, push him up against the cage and just arch the back and get the submission. His nickname is the Reaper. So Cedricas, the Re- the Reaper Dumas, he's got seven wins, no losses, undefeated in pro MMA, four wins by KO, TKO, two submissions and one decision. Looking at the Contender Series fight, that was a 47-second guillotine choke against Matej Panaz, who was actually a pretty good, sizable favorite going into that Contender Series bout, and Dumas shut him down, SD Dumas. Um, A lot of his fights came from Island Fighting Championship, or at least a couple of them did in his pro career. He had a unanimous decision victory over Aaron Highbow. That was back in March of 2022. He got a knockout via head kick at 59 seconds of the first round over DeWitt Dixon at uh, Island Fighting Championship 1. This was actually like the Game Bread Fighting Championship, Jorge Masvidal's Icon Fighting Championship, etc., etc. I mean, coming off being a street fighter, you knew he would be aligned with Jorge Game Bread Masvidal in some aspect of the game. And a lot of these guys have come up through Jorge. And I feel like we're going to see a lot more people coming up through Game Bread Fighting Championship and Jorge Masvidal's boxing promotions that he's been working with lately. And he has a pretty stacked card with a boxing card coming up down the line. I think it's in a few months. But a couple of his other wins, he had a knockout in the first round over Mario or Mario Mancias. That was at AKA Rite of Passage 18. He had a TKO via leg kicks in the second round over Lance Thompson at AKA Rite of Passage 17. He had a TKO uh, submission due to strikes, so he tapped due to strikes over Demarcus Kemp. That was at Game Bread Fighting Championship 1, uh, second round. And then his first professional bout, he got a rear naked choke submission in the first round over Clarence Brown at IFF1, the, again, the Icon Fighting Championships. If you go to his amateur career, though, he had an extensive win rate. He only lost one time as an amateur. He's undefeated as a professional. His amateur record was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight wins and one loss. So combining his professional and amateur records, he actually has a combined record of uh, 15 victories with one lone defeat. And the one defeat came in the amateurs to Miles Lee, via unanimous decision at CFFC 81 back in February of 2020. Back on the amateur circuit, I mean, he had a knockout, a unanimous decision, a guillotine choke submission, an elbow knockout, a TKO, another decision. I mean, this guy is very, very well-rounded, but I think because a lot of people don't know who SD Dumas was or who SD Dumas is, including myself before I saw him on the Contender Series, you're going to think that this guy's just a brawler. He doesn't have technical ability, you know, and, oh, he got the guillotine on the Contender Series, but he's a, he's known as a street fighter. He doesn't have technical ability. He is very, very technical. And if you listen to some of his interviews that he's done, which I normally don't like to do, but he talks about the most important thing in fighting being the foot placement of his opponents and his foot placement and the ability to get the outside foot on the opponent if their opposite stance and set up their shots and how the basics win the championships using the the cross to the body kick, the one-two, the hook to the low kick, the hook to the head kick, the cross to the body, the cross hook high kick. He's very good at the basics and he builds his game around the basics of mixed martial arts and the basics of striking. 
And I really think that Cedricus Dumas can do very well in the UFC. And that's something that I think a lot of people might fade here. They might look at the undefeated record and think after what happened to Hussein Askabov that just because they're undefeated, that doesn't mean that they're going to come into the UFC and keep their undefeated record because a lot of fighters lately have had trouble keeping that undefeated record when they get to the big league, when they get to the pro, you know, the premier mixed martial arts organization. But looking at this fight and breaking it down from a technical standpoint, I think that the more dangerous fighter overall is definitely SD, Cedricus Dumas. I think his striking is a lot more dangerous than Fremd. I think the sharper striker, you know, when it comes to flowing on the feet, changing your stances, mixing up the combinations, I think Josh Fremd is the cleaner striker. Like his one-twos are very clean. He's good with a one-one-two. He was able to catch Trayshawn Gore with it a few times. He can go one-one-two, switch southpaw, right hook, left head kick, switch back orthodox. And he's very flowy with his stand-up. But it might take him a little bit to get going. And he seems to get stifled by the grappling of his opponents. But the one thing I do like from Fremd is even though he has been outgrappled, even though he has been controlled on the floor, he came into that Anthony Hernandez fight on short notice. And although his cardio didn't look the best after that first round, he was able to then outgrapple Anthony Hernandez in the second round, reverse positions, you know, be able to reverse positions up against the cage and get to the top position, look to threaten with submissions of his own, including guillotine chokes. Like this guy's not a quitter. He's a very, very solid mixed martial artist. He's a well-rounded fighter. And against Gore, it looked like he was coming on towards the end of the first round, caught him with a couple one one twos, caught him with the straight punches down the middle. His best shots are definitely his straight punches. And then that left hook is very clean from Josh Fremd as well. You're going to see with Dumas that he likes to throw head kicks, and he's very good with head kicks from the lead left side or the rear right side, depending on what stance he's in, if he's southpaw, if he's orthodox. The kicks from both sides to the head to the body, they're very, very sneaky, and they're very powerful. His technique is good with it too, very nice snap, a whip motion in his kicks, and he's able to get back to the center and work his footwork and his movement. But that right head kick, the lead left head kick, I mean, that's something that Frem's going to have to be careful about. And even though he got choked out in the fight against Treshawn Gore, went unconscious, and then Treshawn dropped him, he bounced his head off the off the mat. He might have got a concussion there. Again, I don't, I don't have confirmation or anything. But you know, if Dumas hits Josh Frem with one of these head kicks, I think he can put him out. Like Dumas has good power, but he's also sharp and technical. I think the better technical boxer is Josh Frem, but I think the better technical kicker is going to be Cedricus Dumas. So will Fremd be able to close the distance, land some good shots with the boxing and hurt Dumas, and then work his overall more well-rounded mixed martial arts game? Or will the power and the danger that Dumas brings to his opponent in Fremd be too much for him? Will Dumas be able to keep it at his distance? You look at his overall reach. It doesn't even give me the reach. Does it give me the reach over here on... Um, Sure, dog. Let's see. Does it give me the reach? It does not. So he's 6'3 at height. 6'4 is Josh Fremd. Let's see if I can look up Dumas's reach because for some reason it's not listed on the UFC website. He has a reach of 79 inches, correct? Let's see. 7 and 0. His reach is yeah, 79 inches and then comparing that to Frem's reach since these websites are so so slow. 
Josh Fremd has a 76-inch reach, so he's going to have a 3-inch reach advantage. Even though Fremd is good at fighting at a distance and using his length and reach with the front kicks to the body, the low kicks, he's very good with the right outside low kick. You'll see that a lot. The calf kicks are a big weapon of the guys under Mark Montoya and Factory X. The jab, feint the jab to the left hook to the right low kick, the 1-2 low kick behind it, the jab left hook right low kick. That's a very common combination, and it's a very intelligent combo. And I think he's going to be looking to chop the legs of Dumas, but he cannot shoot takedowns the same way that he shot takedowns against Treshawn Gore. He can't leave his head or neck in a vulnerable position, shooting a head on the outside single, shooting a double. If he shoots a head on the inside single, make sure that Dumas can't shuck his head over to one side to be able to get that arm around the neck and go palm to palm with it and lock up the guillotine. Because if he leaves his neck out there, Cedricus Dumas is going to take his neck home. He's going to have to watch out for the long rangey punches. But even though their height is similar, but Fremd is a little bit taller, Cedricus Dumas has that two, three inch reach advantage, which is going to help with the straight punches more than the hooks. And the best punches of Fremd are his straight punches, the one twos down the middle, the jab crosses followed up by the left hook. But based on the reach advantage of Cedricus Dumas, He's going to have to make sure that he's in the correct range. And not only that, but that he can step back and get out of range for the counters of a guy who's going to be longer and more rangy and be able to combat the reach and height advantage that Fremd has at this weight class. He's a very tall, long rangy guy for the weight class, but so is Dumas. Even though this is Dumas's first fight in the UFC after the performance on the Contender Series, and Fremd has much more high-level experience than Dumas, I'm going to side with Cedric S. Dumas here. I think that he is the more dangerous fighter. I think that the long reach of Dumas paired with the power that he possesses in his kicking game is going to give Josh Fremd a lot of trouble. I could see a sneaky head kick sneaking up on Josh Fremd and knocking him out, catching him. And like I said, Dumas has good power from the lead left kick, the rear left kick, and the rear right kick, the right kick to the body, the right head kick. He's very good with placing his foot on the correct angles to where he needs to be in order to step to the outside foot of an opposite stance opponent. He's very good at setting up angles. He's very cognizant and very aware of the angles he needs to set up in order to land the big weapons he possesses against his opponents. He's an intelligent fighter. Now, will that intelligence transport into the UFC against a high-level competition? I'm not too sure. I think that Josh Fremd is a good test. I think that this is a kind of a do-or-die Situation for Josh Fremd, where if he loses this one and goes 0-3 in the UFC, even though the Anthony Hernandez fight was on short notice and he had a decent performance, you know, in the second round, you know, if he loses here and goes 0-3, I, I, it might be it for him in the UFC and he might have to go back to LFA, work his way back up and come back, kind of like what Kevin Lee did, but... Um, I just think Dumas is a big problem. I know the undefeated record sometimes, the contender series fade. I've heard it all, but I like Dumas. I like his awareness of the footwork. I like what I hear in some of his interviews, but not even doing the interviews. If I take the interviews out of it, what I've seen from him on the in the Island Fighting Championship, what I saw from him on the contender series is the guy is very intelligent in all aspects of the game of mixed martial arts. He's not the best defensively. He can get caught and with the long-rangey punches and the sharp boxing of Fremd, I think that's going to be a problem for him at a certain point because he, we've seen him get hurt in the Island Fighting Championship where his opponent lunged in with a straight shot and then came up the middle with a lead uppercut and actually dropped Dumas, but he was able to weather the storm, reverse the position, take the back, and get a rear naked choke submission. That was in uh, his amateur career, I believe. But still, he can weather the storm. He can come back undefeated as a pro. I like SD Dumas here. I really like Cedricus Dumas. I think this is a fight where you might want to fade it in terms of betting from a lot of people's perspective because Fremd is kind of in a do or die situation. Fremd is the more 
polished striker. I feel like he has better flow between his boxing and his kickboxing, and he's a good scrambler on the mat. But based on the fact that he leaves his neck out there when he shoots his takedowns, we've seen him get caught in guillotines before, not just the Trayshawn Gore fight. He was constantly getting threatened with submissions against Anthony Hernandez. I think the long reach and the long arms of Dumas are going to help him to be able to lock up the neck if Frem shoots takedowns with his head in a vulnerable position. And I like the kicking game of Cedricus Dumas. I'm going to go with Cedricus Dumas to defeat Josh Fremd via a second round guillotine choke submission. I think eventually he's just going to shoot a bad takedown because he's going to be getting caught by the kicks at the kicking range against Dumas. He's going to leave his neck in a vulnerable position and he's going to get submitted. So my pick is Cedricus SD Dumas to defeat Josh Fremd via second round guillotine choke submission. When I look at the betting side of this fight, I like the fight doesn't go the distance. However, the line hasn't been released yet. So if you see a fight doesn't go to decision and it's under minus 200, they give you minus 150, plus 150, minus 170, anything under minus 200 or plus money, you want to take that. But when you look at the money line for Dumas versus Fremd, Cedricus Dumas is a minus 180. I believe he started off at like a minus 155, minus 160. Josh Frem comes back as the underdog at plus 155. I don't like the over-unders because I, I don't know necessarily if it's going to end in the first round or the second round, but I do like fight doesn't go to decision, which should be at least under the minus 200. And I like Cedricus Dumas on the money line. I respect Frem. I love his game. I think he's a very sharp fighter, but just he leaves himself in vulnerable positions where a guy built like Dumas and a guy who has shown submission upside like Cedricus Dumas can take advantage of it. So it's either Cedricus Dumas on the money line at minus 180 or fight doesn't go to decision whenever that line comes out. You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC Vegas 71, Jan versus Devalishvili, preview, predictions, and analysis. This marks the first fight night since the pandemic era to be taking place outside of the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. It will take place at the theater at Virgin Hotels, in Las Vegas. In the main event of the evening, you have a pivotal bantamweight matchup between the former interim and undisputed UFC bantamweight champion in the number two ranked Pelter, No Mercy on, going up against the number three ranked training partner of the current undisputed UFC bantamweight champion in Aljamain the Funkmaster Sterling and the number three ranked wrestling and cardio machine, no pun intended, actually all puns intended, in Marab, the machine, Devalishvili. Will Devalishvili be one step closer to getting a shot at the 135-pound title, or will Jan take out El Jemaine's teammate and move one step closer to claiming redemption and getting a hold on the gold? 